It's good to come together to exalt the God of all salvation. It's good to do so as those who are saved. So that our praise comes from first-hand experience. That when we exalt the God of all salvation, we're doing so as the God who has fully and freely saved me. I ask you to take your Bible and turn with me to uh, the Gospel of John chapter 19. Harry Ironside tells the story of a great meeting held years ago of the Synod of the Free Church of Scotland. Many ministers gathered, and one was asked to preach the Sunday morning sermon. And he gave a stirring discourse on the beauty of virtue. And near the end of his message, he concluded by saying, Oh, oh, my friends, my friends, if virtue could only appear on earth in human form, men would be so ravished with her beauty that they would fall in worship. It was a tremendous oration by all accounts and very well received. But at the Sunday evening service, later that same day, another minister stood in that same pulpit and preached Christ and Christ crucified. And he closed his sermon with these words. My friends, virtue incarnate has appeared on earth. And men, instead of being ravished with his beauty and falling down in worship, cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. We will not have this man reign over us. And, of course, he was right. Though perhaps not as gifted in order as the first minister was, the second was certainly more faithful to the Word of God, as we will see in our text this morning. John chapter 19 covers the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And last week, from verses 1 through 5, we considered the humanity of Jesus and why His humanity is necessary for our salvation. For only a Savior who is at once fully human and fully divine can perfectly represent both sides and take sin-stained, sin-ravaged people like us and present us clean before holy God forevermore. This means you can be forgiven 
made whole and made right before God and that you are thoroughly known and loved by God. Knowing that Jesus is man is therefore vital to our understanding of Him. The humanity of Christ is essential to our worship of Christ. Equally vital to our understanding and worship of Jesus is knowing that He is God. As well as man. And because He is God, it is not enough to know Him as Savior only, but also as Lord of all. Because He is God, He is worthy of our worship as we live the whole of our lives under His kingly reign. Embracing the reign of King Jesus is essential and in fact is the theme of this morning's passage. So let's read it together. John chapter 19 And I'll begin reading from verse 1 through verse 22. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, to the crowds, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. And when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself A king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried out, Away with him. Away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Shall shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. And so he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross. 
to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these moments we share again together in your word. We recognize that these are We recognize that we share these moments as a gift from you. That we gather in your name as a gift. That we are found in Jesus as a gift. That we have life in Christ as a gift. That we can worship Christ as a gift. That you are working in our lives to wean us from lesser things so that we might worship Him more fully and freely. That is a gift. And so we thank You for Your good and gracious hand. And we ask You to continue doing good to us even this morning. For we do gather under the triumphant banner of King Jesus who reigns today at your right hand over all things, things in heaven and things on earth, even things under the earth. And yet as we read this passage here in John 19, His kingship looks wildly different than what we're accustomed to. So, dear Holy Spirit, please enable us to understand your word that we might each one of us embrace the reign and rule of Christ in our own lives. We ask this for his sake, for the glory of his name. Amen. My key verse this morning is verse 14. It's what I'm basing the entire sermon on. When in verse 14, Pilate declares, Behold your king, he is saying far more than he realized. Like Caiaphas, who in chapter 18 said that it's better for Jesus, it's better that Jesus die for all than for all to die, even those who have no faith in Christ sometimes speak to the truth of Christ unknowingly. Like the proverbial blind squirrel who finds the occasional nut, Pilate spoke far more than he understood when he declared Christ the King. And so what does this passage reveal concerning the kingship of Jesus? That's 
That's what I'm placing before you this morning. That's our consideration today. What does this passage reveal concerning the kingship of Jesus? And I think it reveals at least four things. It shows that Jesus is a divine king, a humble king, an inescapable king, and a king who saves. First, Jesus is a divine king. He is the king who is God. In verses 6 and 7, Pilate, having flogged Jesus, again addresses the Jewish leaders, and the Jews continue demanding Christ's crucifixion, while Pilate continues trying to to, uh, remove himself or rid himself from any responsibility in the matter. Take him yourselves and crucify him, he said, for I find no guilt in him, but the Jews don't back down. We have a law, they reply. And according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. Now this has been their issue all along. That Jesus claimed to be God, the very Son of God, sent from the Father in heaven. You may recall that way back in chapter 5, we read that this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Therefore, the validity of Christ's claims is important to examine. Was Jesus truly the Son of God as He claimed to be? Well, His words and works certainly testified to this end. Jesus spoke as no one has before or since. His words literally calmed storms healed the broken, and raised the dead to life again. By the word of his mouth, he he forgave sin and restored sinners. Those who heard him speak firsthand repeatedly bore witness that his words were unlike even their greatest teachers of the day because Jesus spoke with an authority uncommon to man. Not only his words, but the works of Christ testify also. As you trace his steps through the Gospels and during the course of John's Gospel, John has drawn attention to specific signs meant to emphasize the deity of Christ. From turning water to wine, to feeding the 5,000, to healing the man born blind, Jesus made miracles wherever he went. His power was of a divine quality, unbound by the limitations of created beings. He is the image of the invisible God, we read in Colossians 1. The firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and earth, Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell." 
Or Hebrews 1, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Or John 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So Scripture is clear that Jesus is God, but even secular sources agree that Jesus possessed power and influence of a supernatural kind that changed and is still changing the entire course of history. Historian Kenneth Scott La Tourette asserts, As the centuries pass by, the evidence is accumulating that measured by his effect on history, Jesus is the most influential life ever lived. Newsweek magazine likewise wrote an art, published an article and admitted that by any secular standard, Jesus is the dominant figure of Western culture. Perhaps philosopher Philip Schaff sums it best. Jesus of Nazareth, without money or arms, conquered more millions than Alexander the Great, Caesar, Muhammad, Napoleon. Without science and learning, he shed more light on things human and divine than all philosophers and scholars combined. Without the eloquence of school, he spoke such words of life as were never spoken before or since, and produced effects which lie beyond the reach of orator or poet. Without writing a single line, he set more pens in motion, furnished more themes for more sermons, orations, discussions, learned volumes, works of art, and songs of praise than the whole army of great men of ancient and modern times both biblical and non-biblical sources provide ample evidence supporting the deity of Christ. And yet as convincing as these are, more convincing than them all is the testimony of God Himself. For on at least two occasions, that is baptism and transfiguration, an audible voice was heard from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Jesus is a divine King. He is the King who is God. And He is a humble King. He is the King who yields His divine right when Pilate heard how Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, verse 8, he was even more afraid. Already he was afraid, but now he was even more frightened. And so we read in verse 9, he entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, 
you will not speak to me? To me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. And what's interesting about this exchange is that Pilate, in trying to exercise his authority, is essentially rebuffed by Christ, who has authority over all. Pilate here is flexing his imperial muscle. You can almost picture him straightening his shoulders and puffing his chest, squaring his jaw. He wants Jesus to know that he has the power to set him free or to crucify him. He has the power of the entire Roman Empire behind him. But Jesus is not at all impressed because Pilate's is a delegated authority, not a divine authority like Christ's. And yet, though Jesus could put an end to these proceedings at any moment, he instead set aside his divine prerogative at great personal cost For not only did he withhold his authority, listen, he actually gave it over to those who did him harm temporarily, including the Jews who conspired against him and the Romans who carried out the conspiracy. Whereas Pilate, the highest ranking human authority on the scene, is continually seen taking the path of least resistance, Jesus chose the hard path of suffering, and this without cause as an innocent man. We talked about this last week. Over the last 12 hours or so, he had already suffered so much. All alone, already he'd been betrayed, accosted, arrested, forcibly dragged to the high priest, interrogated, beaten, accused, condemned by the Jews. He'd been passed on to Pilate, questioned by Pilate, found innocent, yet still flogged without mercy. He'd been mocked by the Roman soldiers as they press a crown of thorns deep into his head and drape a makeshift robe around his back and shoulders, pushing and punching and spitting on him repeatedly, his body in complete shock. He is barely holding on physically. He hasn't slept in over a day and is suffering significant blood loss and dehydration. And in this moment, his flesh literally hangs in tatters. Pilate knew of Christ's innocence Verses 12 and 13 reveal that he sought to release Jesus, but he didn't have the courage to follow through. And so he took his place upon the judgment seat while Jesus, the supreme judge of the world, voluntarily subjected himself to unjust adjudication. The Bible says in Philippians 2, 3, Do 
nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. And then in that same well-known, very familiar passage, Paul goes on to present Christ and the humility of Christ, who though he is God, did not cling to his rights as God, but rather emptied himself and became a servant to all by suffering for all to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so Jesus is a humble king, the king who yields his authority to suffer instead. Listen, counting even us in those moments as more significant than himself. Jesus is an inescapable king. And by this I mean that he is unavoidable. That sooner or later, every person who has ever lived or ever will live must come to decision concerning him. The Jews' decision in this passage is clear. Behold your king, said Pilate to them in verse 14, but they were unwilling to behold Jesus in this way. Away with him, away with him, crucify him, they demanded. Shall I crucify your king, asked Pilate in disbelief, to which they, they replied, shockingly, we have no king but Caesar. Now, for a born and bred Jew, particularly chief priests and scribes who were so devout in their Jewishness as God's people, this was treason of the highest order to pledge allegiance to Caesar and to Caesar alone. Devout Jews hated Caesar, hated being under Caesar's thumb, hated being under Roman rule. But in these fateful moments, they chose the oppressive rule of a mere man over the life-imparting, life-renewing lordship of Christ. Here is the crux of the matter, people. The failure of the Jews was in their refusal to acknowledge Jesus as Lord. And these were religious people, ironically. In fact, the most religious people around. And so we have to ask, what does that mean for us? who claim a faith in God as they did. Last week we saw ourselves in Pilate who flogged Jesus despite his innocence and in the Roman soldiers who made sport of Jesus and his suffering. We talked about how these things picture human, human depravity and in in our sin nature within. How, like Pilate, we often knowingly, don't we, and blatantly refuse what's right. 
and how like the soldiers we often knowingly and brazenly accept and embrace the wrong. And this week we see ourselves in the Jews as well who outright refused to accept the rule of Christ. Listen, many, many will accept Christ the man, the historical Jesus, but not Christ the king. But you can't have it both ways because Christ the man is Christ the king. You know, Jesus once warned, this is a warning for, for us, for the religious people Jesus once warned, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. In other words, paying lip service to Christ gets you nowhere in the end. He sees right through it. You're not fooling. You may fool me or those around you, but you're not fooling God He's not seeking an empty profession or a profession of empty faith. What he wants is your heart. He wants heart-level obedience to God that demonstrates heart-level love for God. And so Christ is laid across the path of humanity. You cannot simply step over him and go about your merry way, nor can you go around him as, he, as if he is but a mere roadblock to your own pursuits. In each encounter with him, each person is forever changed. Either you will joyfully receive him as your sovereign and be saved to God, or you will reject him as Lord and effectively seal your own miserable fate. It was C.S. Lewis who once said, that there are basically two kinds of people. Those who say to God, Thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, Thy will be done. And then Lewis adds, All that are in hell, choose it. The Jews chose Caesar over Jesus, an earthly king over the eternal king of kings. And so choose this day whom you will serve, for he is inescapable. He is the king who demands decision. The divine king, the humble king, the inescapable king and finally Jesus is a saving king he is the king for all who believe look with me at verses 19 and through 22 on the cross on which he was crucified near the top and above his head an inscription read Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And the inscription was Pilate's doing. The Jews, of course, took offense and wanted it rewritten, but, but Pilate finally stood his ground for the first time in this entire episode, and he says in verse 22, what I have written, I have written. 
But what's noteworthy about this, at least to me, is not the inscription itself as much as the three languages in which it was written. Aramaic and Latin and Greek. You know, each of the four Gospels include the inscription in their account of the crucifixion, but John's Gospel is the only one to include this small but significant detail. Significant because with the mention of these three languages, John, I think, is highlighting the wide spectrum of people who were there. Aramaic was spoken among the religious. Latin was spoken among the scholarly. And Greek was the everyday language of everyday people. These were the common tongues of the day. And on that particular day, the area was teeming with people of all types from places all over. We're told it was the time of Passover, meaning that people were coming from near and far and from various social circles, and they were flocking to Jerusalem. Even the surrounding region of Judea would have been filled to the brim with travelers of all sorts. That the inscription was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek, therefore meant that every person present would have been able to read it. And as they looked upon Christ and Him crucified, they would have read that Christ is King. What manner of King is this? Some probably wondered. What king would subject himself to such cruelty and punishment? What king would suffer for wrongs, not his own? What king would put himself in harm's way for another? At the very time when people were offering their unblemished lambs, to commemorate Passover, the Passover lamb himself was slain. The lamb of God, whom God put forth for sin and sinner alike. So he is a saving king. He is the king for all who believe. And as we close, how might it, what does it mean to believe? With what we've considered this morning, how might we demonstrate belief in Christ the King? Regarding the saving work of Christ, trust Him. Trust Him. See Him there on the cross, suffering in your place, and believe, believe that His sacrifice is sufficient. That He freely took all that would condemn you upon Himself so that you can stand before God without any condemnation whatsoever. Know, believe, know that you cannot add to or take from what Christ has done for you. Stop trying to earn your way and merit favor with God. Listen, the degree to which we try to earn grace, we basically despise it. 
Regarding the inescapability of Christ, receive Him. Receive Him. To receive Him is to obey Him. You know, in this passage, Jesus is judged unjustly. But one day, He will take His rightful place upon the judgment seat. And hear this, the question then will not be, what will you do with Jesus, but what will Jesus do with you? So be not like the Jews who refused Christ as king. Submit to him freely, live gladly under his lordship. Who wouldn't welcome? Really, who wouldn't welcome a Lord like this? Who loves like this and lives so that you can live too? free from sin and condemnation in relationship with God forever. Regarding the humility of Christ, thank Him. Oh, if we would spend... This is actually an encouragement to you. If you would spend more time thanking God, you would be more content with God. You would find more joy in God. You would be at greater peace with God. Because in that process of pausing to consider all that God has done and is doing in your life and counting, we talk about counting your blessings in that process. Something divine takes place in the human soul that reminds us that God is good. That he would set aside his divine right to suffer for you. Is that not enough to inspire eternal gratitude? You know, if someone were to die for you today, we'd call them a hero. And you would probably spend the rest of your life thanking them and thanking God for them. So how much more shall we thank Jesus from whom we receive life everlasting? Trust Him. Receive Him. Thank Him. And regarding the deity of Christ, worship Him. We've come together to worship Him this morning, of course, but our worship of Christ, your worship of Christ, must not be confined to a particular place at a particular time with particular people only. To worship Jesus is to treasure Him always, to prize Him, to be proud of Him 
and proud to be his and to proudly let others know. Even as we read earlier, that's what it means to boast in the Lord. To worship Jesus is to glory in him who is the king of glory. The king who is God, who humbly set aside his divine right for you, who demands a decision, and who happily saves all who believe. So behold your king and believe. Amen. Thank you for our time this morning, Father. Indeed, will you help us to be people who do trust Jesus through thick and thin. Help us to be those who receive him, welcome him, invite him into our lives. Not, not just one time only, but really every day and throughout the day. Make us to be thankful people who express our gratitude to Jesus often. and God, make us worshipers of Christ, our King, even now. May we glory in the King of glory, today and forevermore. Amen.